Welcome. I'm Dr. Brian Williams, and this is the final lecture of our series. I've entitled it Lecture 4B. This will be a summary uh, of our time together and an opportunity to rethink and to reassess uh, how we've done over the, uh, the, the first lecture series on the topic of holistic symmetrical ethics. What we're trying to accomplish is we're constructing a new Pacific Northwest bioethic. These were lectures that I offered to the Osher Institute at Boise State University at, at, uh, at, uh, in Boise, Idaho during the month of April in 2023. I wanted to get them into a public format so that we'd have opportunity of distribution and reflection on the ideas. And so I appreciate you being with me. If this is your first uh, encounter with uh, this series, then we trust that you would go back and begin at Lecture 1A and flow through each of the ideas so that they are understandable and developed a little more fully than the summary that I'm offering today. The outcomes that we have believed that we have succeeded in offering in this series are an introduction to deep truth and to assess complex thought. If those ideas are new to you, then please return to the beginning of the series and work your way through so that you understand what deep truth is and what complex thinking is all about. We have introduced you to bioethics and its role in society. We have recognized that moral principles are often symmetrical. And so this is a new idea that we are now considering and offering to uh, the healthcare community and those invested in the healthcare community. We want to improve bioethics for static principles with four dynamic principles able to oscillate in crisis. What the pandemic has taught us is that static principles were not helpful. And so the pandemic is a great teacher and served to instruct us on the weakness of our current thinking. What I'm offering now is a new path so that we can move in and out of crises with tools at our disposal, able to oscillate appropriately. We have introduced the seeds of a new political theory. I think each of, each of us in our contexts recognize that our political theory is struggling because our politics is struggling. And when something's not working, you have to go back to the beginning. And that's the philosophy. And so if the philosophy of American political theory is not producing an appropriate political response, then we have to go back and look at our political theory. Uh, and so it's important to think about new ways of thinking to accomplish a new result. We're attempting to work towards holistic unity uh, via symmetrical principles in dynamic tension. And so that becomes the goal. Uh, and that unity 
is, is, will create a practical output of peace. And so peace becomes uh, the, the output of, of holistic, symmetrical ethics. And we've attempted to see pathways uh, to solutions for major social problems. I'll be reiterating and pre presenting you today with those action steps that I feel are helpful for us to understand the theory and how to put the theory into action. I feel it's important that we build a new bioethic, a particularly centered bioethic that looks to the East. And so the name that I have offered is a Pacific Northwest bioethic. That allows us to, to change from our, uh, our millennial long, multi-millennial long uh, view of the, the ancients from the perspective of the Greeks to the Europeans to the Eastern Seaboard Americans to a, a, a view of the, of the Pacific Northwest and recognizing that there is a way of successful living that can be offered from that perspective as well. And that's not just to replace, that is to augment and to develop what we already understand from our view towards the East to now include and to work in symmetry with a view to the West. And so Pacific Northwest does not mean to radically change our view, but to at least look that direction to create symmetry between East and West, so that the West is now understood and we, uh, with our sighting and positioning in the Pacific Northwest, want to offer something new. We believe we have done that. And we want to recognize that a contributor to that view comes from uh, our, our change in perspective so that we're looking to the West and not always to the East. We are recognizing for, that our goal uh, of, of helping healthcare become healthy and caring requires that we think differently. And what we are arguing against is that our 50-year focus on autonomy, actually going back to the 1700s with Kant, but our entire cultural focus on autonomy or freedom or independence had a particular downside in the pandemic. And our focus now needs to change to the point of healthcare, and that's caring. Uh, and so caring for others is now rec uh, recommended as the key focus for healthcare. And that seems so obvious, uh, but when you look at the bioethics principles that have dominated the, the field and the thinking of bioethics, you recognize that it has not been clear that the first principle of healthcare is caring. And so we would recommend that that be inserted now with this adjustment so that caring becomes the first principle. And caring for others is the obvious point of healthcare, but there is also a recognition of care for oneself. And so we have put two principles into dynamic tension. It is virtuous to care 
and it's virtuous to detach. Note that the, the holistic symmetrical ethic is the presentation of two virtues. We have lived most of our philosophical life with the tension between virtues and vices, we're to move towards the virtues, we're to move away from the vices. What I'd like to offer that, that life isn't structured like that. We often are, often are struggling between two positive virtues. And those two virtues are where we have to negotiate in the boundaries of life. And so in healthcare, in healthcare, we have the virtue of caring for others and the virtue of detaching or moving towards and moving away. And that we are in dynamic tension between those two positive virtues, care and detachment. Care is the courage to help others and engage, move toward. Detachment is the courage to help oneself and withdraw. Every medical setting offers the tension between these two virtues of care and detachment. And we want our healthcare providers to lean into care, to make sure that they have the courage to enter into the room, enter into the theater, enter into that setting where someone needs your help and you have the skills and the community that will allow you to help successfully. And so that is an important avenue that we want healthcare to be focused on and to be strong in. But it begins with a recognition that care is our first principle, but detachment or care for oneself is a crucial uh, part of this particular. This will help us in the development uh, of stronger mental health programs for our staff, which have been obviously decimated in our pandemic response. Uh, and so we have to change our our way of uh, developing the first principle of healthcare so that we are healthy and caring for not only the patient, but also the staff member. And so with this symmetrical uh, pairing of two positive virtues, we believe that we can accomplish that goal. And so we also then recognize that leaning into care is a crucial action step that each healthcare individuals. So our first principle is care and detachment, our first symmetrical pairing. Our second symmetrical pairing is to recognize the importance of autonomy, but to equally recognize that it must be paired with its symmetrical pair so that we arrive at two virtues in dynamic tension. And so I'm offering that autonomy, the freedom to act according to one's will, must be paired with interdependence. And interdependence is the duty to act according to the community that one resides. And so we recognize the value and the power of, of, inter of autonomy in the American people. Uh, it is a key virtue, a key value that we have seen grow and develop the entire 
uh, social and political lands landscape of the American people. It is something that we have planted around the world, is that sense that there can be freedom, uh, and that results in, 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 in independence. It also uh, results uh, in, in an opportunity to do what, what one wants to do uh, and to free up the people. So autonomy is a crucial concept. I do not want to, to walk away from that. I, I want to simply place it in better context. And, and so the context that every person of autonomy is set is their community. And so to become healthy in the concept of autonomy, we attach it to the virtue of interdependence. I am a part of a community. And those communities have rules and regulations and traditions that make it a successful community. And it's a community that if it's open and free and dynamic, is always seeking to improve its cultural context, its, its, its uh, traditions, and its way of living so that it's healthy for all individuals. But that takes a virtue of interdependence, that I see that I'm part of a community. I recognize my duty to the community. And I willingly place myself in that community with the rules and regulations that are required for the community to succeed from their own perspective and context. Uh, and so I recognize the value of autonomy and what it has done for healthcare, and it has transformed healthcare. Our ability for the, to be a patient sensitive institution is well documented and that improvement is amazing but the pandemic decimated that particular recognition that autonomy is the sole uh, principle of healthcare and we have to constantly drive to patient-centered healthcare we must recognize the community the community of the staff, the community of the region of the hospital, the community that surrounds the hospital, and the community of, of physicians, and, and uh, the nursing community, the support staff, that all makes healthcare successful. We have to recognize that. It isn't just the patient. It is the patient set in community. And so, the, the positive virtue of autonomy must be paired with the symmetrical uh, virtue of interdependence so that we recognize that virtue in our life. And then we must lean into autonomy. If this video was being presented in Europe, I'd probably say lean into interdependence as that's a crucial virtue to the European context. However, in the American context, I recommend that we lean into autonomy and continue that presence and pressure to, uh, for freedom of the individual to the, to the degree possible in a healthy community. And we have to ensure that our community is healthy and we have a responsibility when it's unhealthy to pull back uh, on our autonomy so that our community can become healthy again. And that was what we saw and accomplished in the pandemic. And so the second pair 
is crucial to do a holistic, symmetrical ethic. Our third one uh, is the, are the classic virtues of healthcare that have been oddly uh, dissected in the traditional presentation of the principles of healthcare. And that's the, that is the virtue of beneficence or doing good and the virtue of non-maleficence to do no harm. And these seem completely natural when placed one against the other. That these are two virtues that the, the healthcare community and citizens in general have to recognize their constantly intention. Do I step in to help? Do I step back to do no harm? What is the decision that you're, you, you can offer in a particular situation? We all sense that when we drive by an accident. Do I do good or do I do no harm? Do I step in or do I withdraw? And so that tension is natural in the life of any citizen in a region. Uh, it is necessary for healthcare that we lean into beneficence, that we lean into doing good, that we risk doing good, but we also recognize that every attempt to do good has a competing, a competing virtue that we have to engage to do no harm. Uh, and there are times we must step back and we have to step back for any number of reasons but that the, the third pairing that is crucial to a healthy healthcare is the symmetrical pairing of beneficence versus non-maleficence. Both virtues, both valuable, but we need to lean into beneficence. The fourth pairing that I like to offer, uh, I have conceived of uh, as justice versus virtuous righteous indignation. I have lived my entire life with this particular concept in, in constant struggle, that our justice community is, uh, is always struggling to find how it, it, it can perform well in community. And I've been wondering about these terms, so I'm going to lay them out as, as I've developed them, but then I'd like to reflect a little bit on it. And so I, I've offered that justice, the virtue of justice, which is a classic virtue in American thought, in human thought, what is justice goes back to the earliest philosophical conversations. It was a con conversation that Plato had in, uh, that it, as he was uh, using Socrates as his, uh, his foil uh, and asking the question, what is justice? And the best definition of justice seems to be giving to each one their right or due. Giving to each one their right or due. Protecting the legal rights of all. To work for the moral rights for the community. My reality as I think about justice is justice is really the, the, the best instructions, the best community for the majority. Uh, and the majority construct the rules, they construct the laws, they construct the way society is defined to be developed so that it can be healthy 
for the community. The dilemma for that is it leaves the minority behind. And so the minority of every community is in the difficult position of having to live against the current standards that are set in community, uh, set with the justice that serves the majority. So the minority in every community of necessity struggles with the, the justice of the, the dominating community. And so while uh, the, under the second point, the, they're attempting to protect the legal rights of all, the way it usually works out is they protect the legal rights of the majority. And that's just a reality of justice over the centuries. And to combat that is the virtue of righteous indignation. That within the minority uh, of, of any community, one or a few rise up and are prepared to deal with the consequences of elevating their voice and to, and to speak to the injustice that occurs in every community. And it usually is the oppression of the minority by the, by the majority. And so righteous indignation is the virtue to protect one's individual rights when the community is wrong. And so we have to understand that that's the dynamic tension that creates justice in, uh, in, in any community. And of necessity, we have to lean into justice. We have to recognize that the majority uh, uh, cannot, uh, cannot be overtly weakened by the voice of the minority. Uh, it has to be sensitive, it has to be aware, it has to adjust, but it can't be weakened so that most of the people in a community uh, are living by rules or regulations that only serve the minority. And so uh, righteous indignation, the virtue of righteous indignation, is a crucial balancing step that must be offered to those who are in the minority uh, or though, uh, those in the majority that have lived their whole lives uh, rec recognizing that they have lived in the majority and something happens and they now feel like they're in the, in the minority. And this often ha happens in healthcare where someone is now uh, very alone and is unable to achieve the appropriate healthcare that is necessary for life. And they become a solar solitary voice. Uh, working against the dominant community so that their interests can be recognized. Um, and so we look at this particular understanding of justice and recognize that we must lean into justice. The current understanding of the dominant community is the way that this community has been successful. But we have to allow the voice of righteous indignation to rise up and to allow uh, the minorities in our community through whatever source to, to exercise their voice to see whether there's changes that must be made. The recognition that I've had is I'm wondering if, the, if, if justice isn't the outcome uh, of our, our conversation. I'm wondering if a better, better word might be tradition. Uh, and so the virtue of tradition 
is, is symmetrically paired with righteous indignation, and that creates justice for all. I'm leaning into that right now as I think about what I'm trying to accomplish to achieve justice for our community. It is such a dominating, a dominating principle uh, for the, this, the healthy outcome of any community. So that the virtue of tradition is paired with the virtue of righteous indignation. And that creates justice, and justice basically stands on its own. It's not just a virtue that we're, uh, we're acting on. It is the result uh, of the traditional values of a community that are defined by the majority, recognizing that the virtue of righteous indignation, that the minority or the individual has to voice to achieve justice, may need to be structured that way. And so that was my reflection today, as I've been thinking about my, my symmetrical pairing. And so, and the point of that is that there is an ongoing conversation, and I welcome you to that conversation about how does justice, how is justice structured? How does it result, and how does it maintain its sense that it's just for all? Uh, and so that that platitude has a sense of reality to it that we can always engage and develop. I have some action steps that I want to recognize uh, are crucial to the healthy, the healthy uh, understanding uh, of all people. The, the slides that uh, I previously have been simply talking through are slides that I, I offered in 4A, and I wanted to simply review them for this particular lecture. Uh, and for those of you that are watching on YouTube, um, you will now see that the slides of what is new is, uh, is now being presented. If you're listening to the podcast, then this was just a, uh, a development uh, of, uh, and a continued emphasis on the conversation of what is holistic symmetrical ethics. I think it's also important to recognize uh, the, the holistic structure of the four uh, uh, pairs of symmetrical virtues that are in dynamic tension. I think we need to emphasize that, and I don't have that on a particular slide right now, but it is, it is, it is important that we think of the whole, not just of the individual virtue. Uh, and the challenge of society is recognizing that we have emphasized one or the other of the virtues uh, and if we don't recognize the wholeness uh, of the pairing, then we fall into the error of overemphasis of a particular virtue. And uh, when you look at the symmetrical pairing we talked about last time, you'll see that's the error of failure to understand uh, symmetrical pairing. I'd like to launch into spe some specific recommendations that have been alluded to in previous lectures, but I wanted to focus on them and build on them. And those are action steps that I'm, recogn I'm recognizing we need to develop to be healthy. And we begin with, with the action steps of the individual. My recommendations are that we, uh, we develop and enhance complex thinking while living simply. The virtue of living simply cannot be uh, uh, overwhelmed. It is a crucial step in life that we live simply. 
li living in a consumer society has forced us to live in, in ways that uh, are, are, are not simple. Uh, and so, so that what I'm not, what I am not arguing for is complex living versus, uh, versus living simply. As consumers, we have created complexities in our, in our lives that have overwhelmed most of us. So my recommendation is to live simply, but to move from simple thought to complex thought when appropriate in the life of the individual. And my sense is a good place that we need now to, to be much more complex is in junior high. So that as they transition into the, teen, into the teen years, we as a society, we as parents, are encouraging individuals to think in a complex fashion so that they can understand the complexities of our society. So many of the struggles we're having in our political structure is from simplistic thinking. Uh, and, and so many uh, individuals who have not had the privilege of being trained in complex thought, which often has, has not happened till the sophomore year of college. Uh, and that complexity of thinking that is a mandate for good university life needs to now flow back probably into that transition into the teens. Uh, and so that we're understanding that complexity of thinking must happen earlier in the lives of our individuals. We need to recognize that we need to be held accountable. And as individuals, if we're not held accountable, we tend to do things in our own best interests. Uh, and we would uh, we, we now recommend that we, that we find a setting of accountability. And our character organizations uh, are those that can offer us that kind of accountability. So the action step is to join a character organization and seek leadership roles in that so that we become active in not only receiving instructions on character, but we are returning those instructions back into our community. And so, uh, and so uh, we have developed what character organizations is in previous lectures, but it's not just churches. It's our social organizations that are constantly uh, offering instruction on effective character. And that might be Rotary, it might be 4-H, it, it, uh, it might be uh, an online group that you are a part of, but we need to, to be accountable to uh, larger communities. And so I have called those character organizations and the individual is recommended to join one of those character organizations. We need to reject party affiliation unless willing to lead. We need to recognize that part of our political unhealthy environment is because too many of us have decided what political party we are and have identified that. And in our day of data gleaning, if they already know how you're going to vote, then they will never, they, they will simply become more and more radical in their uh, recommendations for the community. And so it is strongly recommended that we return to the independent status as the middle ground of the community does not self-identify which side they're on. And then each political party that is in a particular uh, election 
will have to recognize they have to appeal to the middle. And so they have to move away from the rabid steps that we see in so many of our political structures that are unhealthy for the overall community. And there's imposition of the majority onto the minority. Though oddly, there is those in power uh, are often representing the minority in the community and their voice is overheard. And that is an equally uh, uh, terrifying result to what is happening in our political structure right now. And so um, that also needs to be recommended, that we reject party affiliation and unless we're willing to lead. Every political party needs leaders. And when you're in leadership, you should present your voice and your values and your structures. And we should be thankful for all of the political leaders that are willing to help our community by voicing their side of the, uh, uh, of the, the, the typical dynamic pole of, of conservative versus progressive. We need those strong voices. But those strong voices have to be complex. And they have to recognize that the, what their goal is, is to appeal to the middle. It isn't just to place their own political values uh, and to ignore the middle or the other side. It is that opportunity of, of causing the middle to lean into their values. Uh, and so when they impose their political values to the detriment of those on the other side, then they are creating an unhealthy political environment. So we need complexity of thinking for that recognition that we need to be thoughtful of who we're trying to, to uh, mold or shape or argue against to try and, and uh, argue for our political uh, uh, values and purposes, and to be satisfied not with imposing our radicalized goals, but to be recognizing that we have moved the middle into healthy ground. And that's always, always a point of leadership. If we're destined to be a leader, we have to embrace our activist stance and be true to progressive or conservative foundations. So there we're re reshaping what we're trying to say is we need strong political parties that represents uh, progressive thought, repre represents conservative thought. We desperately need those parties uh, and we need those parties to be strong. But we have to recognize that the goal isn't the overwhelming sense that, uh, 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 that we are successful in pushing to uh, our, uh, our, our most radical conservative or progressive thinking. The goal is to move the middle uh, and lean into conservative or to progressive thought. And that creates a healthy dynamic in a political structure. We have to work across the aisle to focus middle, uh, middle focused, to create middle focused legislation. And so that shapes the goal. And so whatever the topic is, the goal isn't to place radicalized uh, legislation in place that will damage the minority. 
the goal is to move the middle so that you're living according to your values, uh, whether progressive or conservative, as the populace has elected someone to move them in a different direction when they shift their votes from progressive to, to conservative or from conservative to progressive. And that becomes a healthier political grounding for our individuals. We then have to recognize that our pairing is crucial to the success of our community. We, we, we recognize that there's some symmetrical pairing creating wholeness that happens in our society. We have to surround our families with both nurturing and disciplining representatives. And so that same concept of moving close or moving away is found here. We need those that love with nurturing care all of the people of our society. We need to know that those who love us with discipline are a crucial part of our society. And we need those in dynamic tension. Now, what is the reality of life is people tend to lean strongly into nurturing or to lean strongly into discipline. And many of us can reflect in our own family lives. And someone in our family was our nurturer and was encouraging and trying to get us going. And there was nothing we could do that, uh, that, that seemed wrong to that individual. But we also have someone else in our family that's a disciplinarian. And then nothing we seem to do was right in those settings. But the point of that is dynamic tension of a symmetrical pair so that we can see a healthy individual emerging from the nurturing and the disciplining love that is offered in the vast majority of our families to, to have a, a healthy individual emerge from that. And so that becomes a key dynamic in any healthy family. We need to look for and bond with the symmetrical other. We need to recognize that our choice of pairing is often a choice of the other that is different from us. We don't become stronger by finding people who are just like us. Let me say that again. We don't become stronger by finding other people who are just like us. And yet when we look at our religious life, we see that we've done that. When we look at our married life, we see that we've done that. When we look at our political life, we see that we've done that. Folks, the key to a healthy community is healthy pairing. So that I am better off when I look for and bond with a symmetrical other. Someone who's different than I am. I need to be in symmetrical bonding with them. Someone that can offer me new thought, new ways of thinking, new understandings of how to see life. Uh, teaching me in, in an appropriate way uh, what I need to know to succeed. That's symmetrical bonding of the pair. And when we disrupt that, we become insular and we become unhealthy. And so I look to our society to be far stronger 
and how do we look for and bond with our symmetrical other. We need to value the complementary pairing of your spouse. And so many of our spouses are so different than we are, and we don't, almost don't understand why we did it that way. Why did we find someone who was so different? Because it's creating conflict in our uh, life setting. But the reality is, it's our responsibility to look for a complementary or a symmetrical pair and to construct a structure where the energy of that particular pairing is productive in the life of our community. A battery uh, uh, that is, is, is constructed with positive and negative, when placed in a structure called a flashlight, creates life. Complementary or symmetrical pairs, when created in a, in a pairing dynamic, which is classically called marriage, when it is healthy and structured well, will use the energy coming out of the conflict and the, the, uh, the, 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 the interactions uh, between the positive and negative poles of a family, when properly organized, will create light. So we want to value the complementary pairing, the symmetrical pairing of those that you are walking with. Recognize that you are stronger when you shore up your weaknesses with another opposite. You are stronger that way. Uh, and so this form of thinking is the way to structure light in our homes. When we recognize that the pairing that we're attempting to achieve, achieve means that I'm in the setting of conflict, negative, positive, but I purposefully allow it to flow through me so that we as a pair can create something that the community sees as light and not just an explosion, which is when the pair violently rejects each other. And so working hard to create light in our community means the successful symmetry of a pair that is working together to create something. The action steps for our community is we need to work to create symmetry in community. We need to value your political other. We need to recognize that we lean into conservative or we lean into progressive thought. It's just how we are, it's how we're structured. But we need to recognize that the most important person in community might be our political other, that person that is not us. And that that conversation might create the light that our community needs for success uh, in building a political structure. We need to recognize that unity comes from symmetry, not uniformity. That unity of our community uh, will, will come from recognizing our political other, those that are different from us, 
those minorities in our midst, those other people that have something to offer us. We need to recognize that unity comes from my attitude towards other people that are different than I am. And if I embrace them in the sense that I can learn and I can be a better person as a result of being around different people, then I am the then I am evidencing the the keys to to unity in community. I don't need people that are just like me. I am me. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of what I'm doing. But for simply for me to build the choir of everyone that is like me is to build an exceptionally poor choir. Uh, and so as I build that community, I want to build those with a different voice and a different structure and a different range and a different perspective so that the choir that I build creates harmony or unity in the sound that it offers. I trust that metaphor helps. To value those willing to lead who recognize the complexity needed to create unity. And so everyone in leadership must first appeal to that community that they lean into. And if they're a conservative, they need to appeal to the conservatives in their community to show that they have their values that are appropriate to building the conservative culture and to recognize every healthy community needs a healthy conservative outlook. Uh, and to be a leader in that is to first prove to that community that you are successful at emulating those values. But then they need to have the complexity so that as they enter into the greater community and what can be called an election, that they are voicing and they are encouraging the middle ground to lean into conservative or to progressive values. And so that that lean is the goal and not the imposition of radicalized conservative agendas or progressive agendas. So we need that complexity. We need to nudge aside those who are strident without complexity. And in our recent political elections, we've seen those strident souls that have almost no complexity to their thinking demanding the, 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 the values of their community, be it progressive or conservative, uh, be imposed in a radical setting. And we need to nudge those souls aside that don't have complexity. And we need to begin to rebuild uh, back in our, in our school system uh, uh, the com complex thinking that's necessary for a healthy, uh, a healthy community. And so as we think about our political, uh, our political structure, we've said it once, we'll say it again, go independent. Data is too strong to make your vote, vote, your vote meaningful if you let parties know your vote prior to elections. Expect alignment with character institutions of all who seek office. I am convinced that our demand that all political entrance into the political arena have to have an accountability to an organization that's larger to themselves. They have to vocalize that affiliation and they have to allow that organization to validate their character. It is the only way forward. 
as we try and nudge aside those clearly without any uh, moral uh, moorings that would, uh, that would serve the community well. Folks, this is such an important area. We need to, to recognize in our religious settings that we have tended to build a, build a choir just like ourselves. We have tended to make sure all the voices sound like I do. They have made sure that, that, we, that when someone different comes along, that we divide and just return to what we were when I was uh, in charge. That's been the story of religious life in America. It is the dividing of the re religious community so that people look more like themselves. And we have done it on political grounds. Uh, uh, we have done it on, on sexual grounds. We have done it on theological grounds. Whatever differences we sense in our religious community, the way that America has built its religious structures is to divide so that now uh, the conservative thought is separated from the progressive thought. Uh, and, so, and so the strong recommendation is we need a reworking of our religious, our religious communities so that we seek and enhance symmetrical relationships between religious communities and rebuild each one of our religious communities, recognizing that we are healthy when we, when we bring conservative and progressive thought into the same organization. Because when we divide, all we're doing is, is narrowing our scope, making us uh, far more rigid in our understanding, attending to isolate our thought and become unhealthy. Uh, and so we, and, and, that, and we truly don't succeed. The minute we divide, we develop a new community that has progressive and conservative thinking in it. Let that sink in. We, we really haven't accomplished anything when we divide. Uh, and so we as a community will begin to merge those kinds of struggles. We need a religious community that is a merger community, just like our current business structure, is merging for success, taking uh, other entities, merging with them, and creating success. Our religious communities need to take a page out of our business communities and realize that is the next step in American religious life. We need to be a merging community where we're bringing in others, recognizing that that will create conflict, but to structure the conflict in positive ways so that we can take that, 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 uh, that division and we can see light out of it. And it comes from being in relationship with those who are opposite to us. So our religious life and our religious steps are necessary. We need a revival of religious institutions. And many of those institutions have sought a revival of the individual. The revival now needs to be of religious institutions.
And those steps of reform are steps that I'm laying out for you today. We need action steps for our healthcare. To do, little, to do any little steps to make healthcare healthy and caring. We need to constrain the hospital revenue stream by recognizing the monopolistic tendencies in healthcare. We typically only have one hospital in our communities. We may be so lucky as to have more than one if we're a larger, a larger community. But for so many of us, we only have one setting of healthcare. And that tends to create monopolistic thinking among those seeking to drive revenue. And that monopolistic thinking must be restrained. We have to constrain that. We have to ask each person in healthcare and business if their income is fair. If it is not fair, it is unjust to everyone else. Is your income fair? If not, and you're still active, you need to reduce it. If your income is not fair, if you are a virtuous person, you know the answer to that. Reduce it. If you're inactive, if you're retired, give back to make healthcare affordable for the next generation. Do whatever you can to reduce the costs of our healthcare. Volunteer, give back, donate, whatever it takes to reduce the cost of healthcare. American healthcare is unhealthy, and it is unhealthy primarily because its revenue streams are, are outside the realm of reality for most of the patients that encounter the healthcare system. And if you're a part of healthcare, your part is to reduce the demand for revenue. If that means giving up, give it up. If that means to give back, give back. But you must, you must allow healthcare to become healthy. As Confucius said, a good deed that is too expensive is not a good deed that we all must recognize and abide. For the world, the action steps are seek unity through holistic symmetry. The next steps I'd recommend are reading. Please make sure you read the Beecham and Childress children's texts, Principles of Biomedical Ethics, you'll see what I'm arguing against. It is the premier text that under, underpins the philosophical structure of healthcare. Uh, and so you'll see uh, what I'm arguing against. And they have done a marvelous job of creating health in the healthcare system, but the pandemic did a better job of showing our unhealth, and we need to respond to it with a new bioethic, which I'm offering.
we need to recognize there's some wonderful bioethics organizations. The ones that I have enjoyed are the Hastings Center. Uh, my journey for bioethics began there. I picked up a, Hast uh, a Hastings Center article and I enjoyed uh, what the results were of thinking of bioethics and, and helping to our healthcare system become healthy and caring. Some of my work, uh, uh, one of my most recent uh, little booklets, I've entitled Complementary Bioethics. I have since changed my title, but you'll see the thinking and the underlying uh, thinking is in that booklet, uh, Complementary Bioethics, and that's available today on Amazon. You'll see another, another book that uh, I've, I've, I've written and offered is entitled Holiness Unto Truth, Catholics and Wesleyan Thought. That's currently available on Amazon. And you'll see how I'm operating in a religious structure to take two communities that are typically opposed to each other, to place them into dynamic tension, and to record the results of that, and then try and make some meaningful comments on what we're attempting to do. You'll see from an education point of view that in this area, the University of Washington offers a uh, master's degree in their Department of Bioethics and Humanities. Uh, and that's been uh, a, an important asset to our region. Uh, here at McCall College, again, I serve as president of McCall College, we have our Ethics Center, and that's a website. And you'll see um, that it uh, is ethics.center. And so um, that is the website that we have offered, uh, https uh, colon front slash front slash ethics.center. And we also uh, have our YouTube, uh, our McCall College YouTube, of which you'll find uh, these YouTube uh, presentations. And uh, those, have been, those will be available to you. And uh, also, we've just added our podcasts. And the name of the podcast is Dr. Ethics Transforms. Uh, and so if you're looking generally, I would guide you to Spotify to uh, find this, uh, this podcast, uh, though we're seeking to place it on the uh, majority of podcasts that, that are presented uh, around the world. And we trust that you can enjoy this from a podcast form as well as uh, any other form. I began my first lecture with a vow. And I close this final lecture with the same vow. My pilgrimage of holistic symmetry. I will search for truth insatiably. I will create a worldview that permits conflicting truths to exist peacefully. I will seek others who are different than I to cultivate a setting of coexistence. I and all will become whole in that setting. Our setting of healthy symmetries in dynamic tension will become whole with us. I am one and many, and journeying to wholeness. May my and our complex truths 
leading to action, carry us to harmony, peace, and unity. Thank you for the privilege of your time. Thank you for the opportunity of introducing you to new ideas that I believe are helpful in creating a healthy community. Thank you for the pilgrimage we've been on of ideas, but it's all meaningless unless we all convert them to action. May you be a better person. May your pairings be healthier. May your communities be dynamic in the life that is necessary to protect the individuals. May our religious structures, our political structures, be, be structured and created in ways and transformed in ways that are meaningful and healthy to us all. And may our world find peace. Thank you, and good night.